you are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight in the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews, as our studies continue there, for a second time, we have all things greater and better in Christ. And tonight in our consideration of his priesthood for a second time, we certainly do see that. We had begun to talk about the priesthood of Christ back in chapter 5. The Hebrew writer interrupted his own self and put the discussion on hold for a moment, saying that there was a lack of maturity, a lack of knowledge on the part of his audience, so that he needed to give some exhortations first. There's exhortations about immaturity, even of the dread danger of falling away. But he wrapped that up saying he wasn't thinking of most of them, but certainly a few must have needed that exhortation. But he said, we're convinced of better things concerning you and the things of salvation. So then he went back to the priesthood, and he showed that in so many respects, the priesthood of Christ was better than the priesthood of Aaron. And last week we studied and saw in chapter 7 that we have a priestly king. Uh, We have a king who is priest. Like Melchizedek, we have the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the real king of Jerusalem. And we found the, the one through whom and by whom Abraham, the father of the faithful, worshiped. And so Abraham is a pivotal figure in the Old Testament. There's a number of figures in the Old Testament that uh, prefigure Christ for us. But interestingly enough, not Abraham. Abraham is very directly the father. He's the father of the Jews, of course, by actual descent. But he's also the father of all the faithful. And so of all the great characters like David and Joseph, and to some degree even Isaac, uh, who uh, prefigure for us Christ, Abraham prefigures for us the believer. And so Abraham, the believer, worshiped God through this kingly priest. And we found that in the beginning of chapter 7. We found that Jesus was the a priest after the order of that king. By the power of an indestructible life, we'll find not by the power of lineage, not by the power of physical requirement. And it was a superior order. And we said that the hinge verse of this whole chapter, I I think, is verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 7, which is where we ended last week and the launching point for what we'll study tonight. Chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. So there was a priest who would arise, who would be designated by God on different criteria, and that was needed because salvation was not in the law. And so we're now going to talk more about that, about the suitability and the need of this higher and better and more effective priesthood and the blessings which it brought. So in chapter 7, now 
We begin our reading in verse 12. It's a lengthy reading. Tonight we'll be moving a little faster than we often are, but uh, there'll be reasons for that as will be apparent. So chapter 7, we'll read the whole reading, chapter 7, verse 12, to the end of the chapter in Hebrews. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of the law also. For the one concerning whom these things were spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the order uh, and likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's the setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And insomuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more. Also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. For the former priests on one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented from death by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, became because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came from the law, or came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So last time as we began the discussion, we talked about priest and a priesthood, uh, those who are appointed to bring men and women to God and to bring the things of God to the people. And so they brought the people to God, took the things of God to them. And here we see that Christ fully and completely and in his one singular person, not through a line of priest, he does this forever, and he saves them. So he fully meets our need in this gospel way. And this chapter talks about some of the implications of this fact. So what we have is Jesus' wonderful abiding and saving priesthood. He, can, uh, he abides, he saves, he, he is the one who forever does it. So we first note there's a wholesale replacement now, this by itself could be a whole series of lessons on authority, 
We'll note that the uh, uh, main fact that uh, the Hebrew writer appeals to is that the law did not say, we would say did not authorize, uh, did not enjoin, did not give warrant, however we wish to express it, did not say a person could be a priest except that they came by Levi and the high priest by Aaron. But we have Jesus from another tribe. And so we're not operating under the rules of the law. We have, in fact, set aside the law. We've superseded the law. We've replaced the law with the better thing, the thing that God gave as an oath. So verse 12, when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place also a change of the law. If you change the priesthood, you have changed the religion. What was it when they set up calves at Dan and Bethel? They said it was to Jehovah, but they worshiped in the wrong place. They worshiped not at God's altar, but on these idols they've made. And they had people from every tribe be priest. They changed the location. They changed the priesthood. They changed everything. The, the religion of Israel was from then on a corrupted religion. It could never be restored back to God as long as they kept those things and they never got rid of them. They really had a different kind of religion. And so here comes Christ. And yes, we now have a different uh, administration, but we have a different way of God dealing with us. We talk about the gospel way instead of the way of the law. And so Christ under the law, and where we're still under the law, Christ could not be our priest because he comes from another tribe of which it says the law spoke nothing. Uh, there was a king, Uzziah, uh, who one time said, I'll offer the sacrifices for myself. He was struck with leprosy. That's Second Chronicles 26. King Saul, the first king of Israel, when Samuel delayed, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin said, I'll offer the sacrifice. And God said, you're rejected as king. And so there's no way by authority and uh, uh, appeal, uh, by practice of the law, that we can have Jesus as a priest. We can have Jesus as our priest, or we can have the law. But we can't fully have both. Verse 14, it's evident that our Lord descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priest. When we go and speak where God has spoken nothing, then uh, we're in abrogation of his law. Now, as it turns out, he didn't speak about Jesus being a priest under the law, but he talked about Jesus being a priest by the order of Melchizedek. And so we have this wholesale replacement, but it's not without warrant because it is exactly what God said would happen. And so it's clear still. Verse 15, if another priest arise according to the order of Melchizedek, this is how clear the change is. We don't have a priest of Aaron anymore. We have a priest after Melchizedek. Again, perfection through the Levitical priest did not come. The rites and rituals of the law, they could not save. They looked forward and they prefigured Christ. And Christ was the only one who saved, either then or now. They were saved looking forward to Christ in faith. We're saved looking at what Christ has done and now ever lives. And we are saved in him through faith, but we are not under the law now as we do that. So they came, again, verse 16, on the basis of a physical requirement. We could go back to read Leviticus 21 
where it details no man should be the priest if he has any kind of defect, if he's blind, if he's lame, if he's disfigured, if he has a deformity, if he has broken feet or broken hands, if he's a hunchback or a dwarf or all kind of other things. He was excluded. But Jesus didn't come on the basis of his physicality. He didn't come, again, Leviticus 21, 21, no man among the descendants of Aaron will be priest who has a defect. Well, they didn't have any defects physically. But man, weren't sometimes the priests some awful rotten guys? Sometimes they were careless, like Samuel's sons, profane men who slept with the woman who came to work at the temple. Uh, Sometimes they were corrupt, uh, and they were almost like a mafia, like the ones who conspired to put Jesus to death. But you know what? Not a hunchback or a dwarf among them. Not a single guy there with a deformity of any limb. Not, not a guy who had any kind of birthmark uh, on his face. Not a fella who had any kind of missing anything. These guys were of the right lineage, and they are the right health. They are the right soundness of body. But we don't have a priest who's there for that. We have a priest who's there in the soundness of his character, in the moral perfection of sinlessness. We have a priest who's there because he's the son of God rather than these sinful sons of Aaron. And so this better hope that we have, we see it's backed by Scripture. Yeah, the Hebrew writer saying clearly in the clearest place, I think, in the New Testament that's ever stated, that the law is gone. The law is not here. But that's not heresy that the Jews thought it was. They, the Jews would claim about Stephen. He constantly speaks against this place and against the law. And uh, there was constantly the charge against Christians. You speak against the law. No, we speak about what the, was promised uh, in, in the Scripture concerning the law. And so uh, they didn't come and just uh, make this up for themselves. This is fully backed by Scripture, though it changes the law. Verse 17, for it is attested of him. What, who spoke it? Who attested? God did. And then these Jews know it? Yes, it was right there in the Holy Songbook. It was right there in the book of Psalms. Maybe they'd sung this last week in the synagogue, or sometime they'd remember. Hey, you know what? We used to sing this. I wonder if they, did they still put this in the singing rotation after Christ came and fulfilled it and has pointed out, it's attested to him. God spoke, Psalm 110.4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You are the permanent priest. You are the one, this one who has the oath of God. You are the forever priest. As Melchizedek's priesthood had no end, as verses 1, 2, and 3 spoke, so it is with Christ. So, By the order of Melchizedek, we have an eternal and royal priesthood based on the personal merit, the personal fidelity and faithfulness and character of the priest. And he can make perfect as opposed to the Levitical order of priest, which is temporary, both in which priest presided, because as the text will go on to point out, there had to be a lot of them because they kept on dying. It's temporary also in the nature of the fact God promised its replacement to come. It was in place for about 1,400 years, 
maybe 1,500 years. That's a long run, but it's not permanent. There's a lot of things in this world had a millennia and a half run or longer, but are now gone. So it was a temporary priesthood. It was based on physical law and based on physical requirement, based on earthly descent. And the priests were imperfect, and they left the worshipers imperfect as well. As opposed again to Christ, verse 25, who abides forever and can save forever those who come and worship him. So this was fully attested to by God. You don't change the law without God's approval if you want to be in fellowship with him, if you want to be part of his family, if you want to be in part of what is promised in Christ. I think about our Mormon friends, and I've known some Mormon uh, youth, uh, and you know, when they get to uh, 12 years old, it's a big deal for them. They get to enter the priesthood uh, of the Mormon church. And they've got this a hodgepodge of uh, biblical titles. It's almost just kind of all jumbled together. Uh, they've got a um, what they call an Aaronic priesthood, a priesthood after Aaron, where they are deacons and then teachers and then priests and then bishops. And then when they get a little older, they get what they call their Melchizedekian priesthood. And that's where you get to be an elder. We know those 18-year-old Mormon elders because it all says, always says so right there on the on the name tag they wear. It's like, boy, you don't look old enough to be an elder. Oh, in our church I can be. All right, well, not by the dictionary of the Bible, but go ahead. Give me your spiel, I guess. Let me hear how well they trained you. We've heard it from others too. But then after the 18-year-old elder, then they move up to high priest, and that's not the top of it. Then there's a patriarch, and then there's one who's called one of the 70, then at the very top, there's a guy called an apostle, and that's in their Melchizedekian priesthood. So they've, they've made their own priesthood with their own rules and their own regulations and literally their own definitions of English words. But it's just a jumble of, you know, Bible uh, roles and, and Bible descriptions. And I could make up one that probably makes more sense than theirs, I think. Wouldn't be any more effective, but I think at least I could make it more logical. But in any case, the priesthood of Christ is not like that. It is with the power and the oath of God. And these Jewish folks, as they would study the life of their forefather Abraham, they'd run across the mysterious character who is now explained. And then as they'd sing, as, as we mentioned, they'd sing in their divine songbooks. They'd sing from the Psalms in their Psalter, in their synagogue. They'd read and sing this promise. And now comes Christ to fulfill it. And good for us that he did. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there's the setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. That's, that's a pretty harsh critique of the law. That's why the unbelieving Jews said the Christians were always speaking against the law. The law is weak and useless. It's not just the Hebrew writer that says, Paul says in Romans 8, for the, what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's what the Hebrew writer says here. The law made nothing perfect. So on the other hand, there's the bringing of a better hope. So we got hand one, which is the weak law, which needs to go away. On the other hand, we got the better hope by which we draw near 
to God. And so there's a nearness to God. This is a this is an effective priesthood. This is an effective ministry, more so than the priest of the law. We think about that strange incident that occurred as Jesus was dying, that the great veil, and, and don't think about a, a veil, or sometimes we call it a curtain. Um, don't think about the curtain that's just, just blocking the light uh, from your front windows. This thing was a tapestry. Think of uh, the finest oriental rug that there ever was. This great, this great tapestry, this veil that hung down uh, between the most holy place and the holy place in the temple. And though nobody could go in there uh, because the doors of the temple were kept open, uh, those uh, men of Israel who were able to walk up and stand in front of it, of the temple, they could see, they could see into the temple and they could see uh, the holy place in the back. And uh, in Solomon's temple, and I think they probably recreated this quite uh, as well, in the um, in the uh, second temple, there were these massive olive doors, uh, olive wood doors, but they didn't close them. As a matter of fact, when the uh, Ark of the Covenant was there with the poles uh, in, in its side, the ones that were used for transport, but then since they didn't need to transport anymore, just there is a reminder and, and, and uh, kind of you know really a, a relic. Uh, when those poles are there, they were so long the door couldn't shut, and so it it sort of pushed out on the curtain, it pushed out on the veil, and just by seeing that you you know that the ark was there. Of course, they had lost it by the time of Jesus, and so maybe they uh, uh, didn't have those those rods there anymore. But that great tapestry, that veil covered the holy place. But as Jesus died, that was rent in two. It was torn from top to bottom. Normally things like that fray at the bottom and the edges where where you, you pull them back and you touch them and you move them. This was rent from top to bottom. And it was a symbol that God was making it open. He's saying, come into me. Come to my holy place. The, the sacrifice that lets you come to my holy place, it's right now being offered. And it was offered, it was offered in Christ. And so the law didn't let you come close. The law didn't make you perfect. And so now we've got the better hope by which we draw near to God. And we'll have more of that, particularly in chapter 10. And it came again, verse 20 repeats, it came with an oath. This isn't something backfilled by Christians. This isn't something that Jesus and his followers said, hey, you know what, we uh, we ought to say this about it, and that'll explain it. It, it was pre-explained. It was pre-promised <clears throat> a thousand years in advance. <clears throat> it came with an oath. But verse 21 says, the priest of the Levi didn't have an oath. Verse 20, insomuch as it was not without oath. Verse 21, for they indeed became priests without an oath. Well, you didn't need an oath for the regular commandment and the regular instruction, the regular promise of God. Those are all true. But from time to time, and there's not all that many of them, God would give an oath to particularly concentrate the mind of the faithful so his people would have a sure confidence. And so uh, God gave Abraham an oath. We studied it back in chapter 6. God also sometimes would give a negative oath. I swore in my uh, wrath they would not enter my rest. Deuteronomy 
uh, 1 makes mention of that. We've had that also back in chapter 4. In Deuteronomy 4, there's as well an oath of God that Moses won't get to the promised land. And then in Psalm 89, there's an oath of God that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. Now, in the kingdom of Judah, one of David's descendants sat on the throne for over 300 years. Again, that's a long time, but it ain't forever. And so here Jesus comes, he's going to fulfill that promise. So he has an oath of his perpetual kingship, as well as he has an oath of his perpetual priesthood. And so this is not something that was unknown or unexpected by God. This is not something that was made up at the last minute and inserted in. These were thousand-year-old promises, oaths of God. And the people would wonder, what about that? God made an oath. Here comes Jesus. He's fulfilling these things. And so the Lord has sworn he won't change his mind. Verse 21, you're a priest forever. You're my forever priest. So much the more also Jesus became the guarantor of a better covenant. How do we know we have this better covenant? We have this surety. We have this guarantee. We have this promise revealed and done in God. And so these things are in Christ. In chapter 8, we'll talk about the better covenant. So now, some implicate more implications. So we've already seen we got the uh, law that was, was uh, changed. We've already seen we got the forever priest in Jesus, and God had fully attested that by prophecy and by Scripture. Now for us, the practical implementation of this for, for us, what does it mean? It means we can be fully and permanently saved in Christ. There won't need to be worry of another coming and saying something else or changing. There won't be worry that uh, we won't be saved in him like the people were not made perfect before him, only they were made uh, you know, uh, uh, perfect in promise, as it were, in expecting of what would come. So we've got the full and the permanent salvation. The Levitical priesthood kept changing, uh, partly by the corruptions of people, partly by them getting old. Christ never changes. We'll find out in chapter 8. Excuse me, chapter 13, verse 8. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. These guys weren't. All right, so verse 23, our final section. The former priest, on one hand, we've, we're up to the third third hand already. We've got this one, that, and that. So now we've got another comparison. We're getting a two-hand comparison here. For the former priest on one hand, so, so think of them, they existed in great numbers. Because they were pre prevented by death from continuing. How many priests were there? By the time of Jesus, they had to draw lots to see uh, which one of them could do the, the sacrifices, which one could do the things, because they had so many. They'd have them come in for two weeks at a time by their courses. There were 24 courses. They'd each come in for two weeks at a time, kind of like the National Guard. They'd be at home most of the year. They'd go down to Jerusalem. Every two weeks, you'd get a new flight of them coming in to do their uh, priestly service, and then we had the big weeks of the year where the high priestly family, uh, they and, and their people would take care of it. So 48 weeks a year, by 24 courses, they'd all come to town. But there had to be a lot of them because they kept on dying. Uh, there's a Bible dictionary that counts up 81 high priests from the time of Aaron to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's just the high priest. There's 81. Uh, you know, I, I like the... Uh, 
uh, you know, the, the Christian education version of, of the high priest. Uh, children, everybody please name the high priest. Oh, it's Jesus. Okay, good. Everybody gets 100, move on. <laughs> As opposed to the Jewish one. Okay, children, everybody name the high priest. Aaron, Phineas, yeah, gets a little foggy. Uh, Caiaphas and Annas. Oh, we shouldn't talk about them. Um, yeah, it's a whole different category of things. So one priest or 81 high priest. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds the priesthood permanently. As he said to John when he was, John fell down seeing the glorified Jesus, fell down as a dead man at his feet. Jesus raised him up, pulled him up, said, Revelation 117, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living. Behold, I was dead, and now behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So I'm the only one. I'm the first and the last. I've got this whole thing under control. Life and death, it's in my hand. I got the keys. It's all good, and you're with me. Therefore, verse 25, because he holds that priesthood permanently, as verse 16 had said, by the power of an indestructible life. Therefore, verse 25, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. So there'll never be another replacement. There was a replacement for the priesthood of Aaron. There was a replacement for the things under the law. There was something better coming. There's nothing better coming now. There's nothing better ever could be. The best is here and is fully accomplished. And so he can save forever. Nobody's going to be saved by any way coming after this. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, I like the King James there poetically, he ever lives to make intercession for them. Jesus still has a purpose in his life. He is living. He has a life. And it says here his purpose is to intercede for the saints. Just as we studied on Wednesday night, he prayed for Peter before Peter's temptation. Is he praying for us now? Yes, this says so. Do I know what particular prayer he's saying for me? No, not the exact particulars. I have a feeling it relates to salvation. Boy, do I need it. I'm glad he's there. But he's making intercession for me and for you and for all who draw near to God through him. It's fitting. Why is it fitting? We don't deserve this. It's fitting because God's mercy and grace has made it so. God who wants us to be saved has given us this. It is fitting for us to have such a high priest. Not that we deserved it because, man, this guy's not like us. He is holy. He's innocent. He's separated from sinners, and he's exalted among above the heavens. He doesn't need to make daily sacrifices like those other high priests to offer up the sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Notice the contrast here in every way between Jesus and men, uh, those who are rebellious and not coming to him, and also those who are by faith coming to him, but which are holy. Uh, the only ones that are holy and blameless are the ones he's made so, right? By overlooking, by not counting their sins against them by forgiveness. He's innocent. Boy, which of us are that? Which of us? He's undefiled. Oh, would that it were so. 
He's separate from sinners. We're the sinners. There's a sense in which he's separate from us. He was never polluted like us. He never participated in sin like us. Yes, he loves the sinners. He was a friend of sinners. That's what his enemies said about him. Even the tax gatherers and the harlots. But he wasn't polluted in his love for them and his connection to them. He's separate from all the sin. He's in a different class than all the sinners. And he's exalted above the heavens while we are not. But no. So it's fitting for us to have that kind of high priest. Because why? Because God wants us to have that high priest. Who provided this high priest like this? God provided it. He said, this is what you people, my people, this is what you need. This is what I'm going to give you. And so in this we have, in this we have a hope. We don't, he, they, or he does not, verse 27, need to make the daily sacrifice. They made the sacrifices for themselves. Just as we are to make a daily prayer, right, from the Lord's prayer, that uh, we, we will forgive others as we're forgiven. Right, that's a daily prayer. Why is that a daily prayer? Why did these priests have a daily sacrifice? There's daily need of, for us, but he needed only once. He offered a sin for others, a sacrifice of sin for others, not needing to make one for himself because of his separation from sinners and his innocence and his undefiled character. He does not, verse 27 again, need to offer up sacrifices first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. He did this once for all. He is taking care of it forever when he offered up himself. The law, well, we don't want the law. The law appoints men to high priests who are weak. Think about those rascals that put Jesus to death. Think about the other high priests that we know of, the stories and some of their biography in Scripture, which of them cover themselves in glory. There's some heroic ones. There's some awful good ones. But there's more rascals, even among the high priest, than there are true saints that are recorded. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which comes after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. God gave an oath that his perfect son would be our perfect and abiding high priest. And this is what we need. And it's fitting that we should have this. This is exactly what we need. And we need all of it. God gave us what we need. From his grace, he did provide. And so we have Jesus, the abiding and the saving high priest. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.